Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. This is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today are some of the biggest names in health policy influence and clinical leadership, and I speak to them all in one bumper episode of Talking Health Tech. Earlier this month, at Baker McKenzie in Melbourne, Australia, the Medical Software Industry Association, the MSIA, hosted its March Forum for Members. If you don't know, the members of the MSIA are providers of technology to the healthcare industry of Australia. And when they put on an event, they're going to get the very best of the best in key opinion leaders and experts into the room to provide some really meaningful and actionable insights for members. They also do a bunch more other stuff outside of events that's essentially like being the voice of every software vendor to raise important issues right up through government to influence policy decisions, which is ultimately linked back to how technology is adopted in the healthcare ecosystem here in Australia. So that's really important. And in this current climate of COVID-19, which is essentially a rapidly evolving crisis situation that's heavily relying on health technology to address a global catastrophe, The need has never been more obvious to have a single voice, a consistent message, and some clear direction. So, at the MSOA forum earlier this month, again, much like last time, I was able to catch a number of the the presenters after they spoke for a few minutes for a debrief. Essentially, this episode of the Talking Health Tech podcast is like a TLDR of the MSIA March Forum. If you wanted to check out the full slides of these presenters and see the full program of of who was on stage, get in touch with the MSIA via msia.com.au and learn more about becoming a member because these these presentations aren't for general consumption. They're filled with some amazing insights that just weren't for public release. So for members only, it's it's simply a non-negotiable in my opinion for all health tech vendors in Australia to be a member of the MSIA. So without without further mucking around, let's check out some of the speakers. George Tambassis is the National President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. He's been a community pharmacist for over 25 years and he's a partner in five community pharmacies in and around the city of Melbourne. As President of the Guild, he's essentially the voice of the 5,700 pharmacists in Australia. At the MSIA Forum in Melbourne, George participated in a health policy panel session called Sharing the Health Burden and Pushing the Boundaries, Health Leaders Stake Their Claims. It was fascinating to watch George debate some of the important topics with the president of the AMA, who essentially represents every doctor in the country. So you've got the president of the Pharmacy Guild and then the president of the AMA to see what they definitely agreed on, what they kind of agreed on, and what they definitely did not agree on. In a chat with George after the panel, he shared with me some of his key takeaways from his session. Key takeaways for me, and I I think um, certainly the panel members, was to make sure we collaborate using the technology that we have at our fingertips but also emerging technologies. And when I say collaborate, make sure that we have the patient at the centre of our uh, collaboration, make sure the patient can choose, for example, which um, provider they go and get their prescription dispensed at rather than channeling prescriptions. Mm. We certainly want to collaborate more with government and make sure their policy decisions are policy decisions that come from advice from stakeholders like pharmacists or doctors or uh, uh, medical software providers. So then again, those policies that are uh, put together by government have fantastic patient outcomes. Yeah. Because if we let one sector take control, you will see, you know, it's just 
uh, unfortunate human nature that that particular sector wants to take control or be the leader. Sure. So I don't use words like leadership when I talk yeah. about pharmacy, yeah. but I certainly want to promote the fact that pharmacy is a very, very big piece of infrastructure that we have in this country. Mm. And I always quote the 5,700 pharmacies out there. Mm. And pharmacists want to do more. We don't want to do more by ourselves. We don't want to be the leaders either, but we do want to collaborate. And that's why I love coming to these sort of conferences because we invest heavily in technology. And and you know some of the members of MSIA are also owned by the Pharmacy Guild because we've invested historically Mm. in companies like Fred IT and Guildlink. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue investing because we know that's the future. So we're happy to support initiatives like telehealth that uh, Tony Bartone mentioned, happy to support that because that's like a win-win for everybody. Mm. Uh, and, and, and also that collaboration sort of ticks off that box as well. Uh, pharmacists, I believe, are underutilised and that's where, again, te- technology can play a role. We can do more for our patients and we actually can do more for our uh, colleagues that are in slightly different professions because mm. we can share our information. That's why I think early on Emma mentioned that fantastic in- initiative called Medication Continuance. The Pharmacy Guild of Australia negotiated that during the Fifth Community Pharmacy Agreement 10 years ago, wow. you know, with, uh, with Minister Roxon. Mm. That's like four health ministers back. <laughs> but unfortunately, they would, only, they would only allow us to do two statins and the oral contraceptive pill. So basically, simvastatin, pravastatin, and any oral contraceptive pill that's on the PBS. They were only three medications for close to 10 years mm. that we were allowed to do as medication continuance using really strict protocols and only for patients that couldn't go to GP clinics. And then all of a sudden, the crisis like bushfire. Yeah. And they said, oh, hang on a minute. These guys have been doing a good job for these very three safe medicines. They should really use the same protocols and strict guidelines mm. for basically everything on the PBS except the drug of addiction. Hello? That was like a crisis that solved that situation yeah. for patients. Like, bang. And of course, the medical software you know, vendors came on board straight away because we needed them mm. to be able to price those medicines appropriately for our patients and fund the fact that we've been dispensing those patients at the appropriate copayment. So, but to start with, they just said the expiry date is at the end of March because the bushfires will be all over by then. Okay. But yeah, the bushfires are all over by the end of March, but now we've got another crisis. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I can't be convinced that patients won't be continuing to come into our pharmacies at the odd occasion that they can't go and see their clinic, mm. their GP at their clinic, because for all sorts of reasons, maybe with the current crisis around the coronavirus, yeah. you know, maybe they don't want to get infected in the waiting room. Totally. Maybe it's just the doctor says no appointments today. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's a perfect instrument that we've got in place. Mm. We, we can't allow that particular instrument to expire at the end of this month. Mm. We've got to set really strict guidelines, get the medical software vendors to make sure it all is, you know, done properly and appropriately in terms of funding and co-payments and continue on down that way and have fantastic patient outcomes. Now, in the other corner, Dr Tony Bartone, the Federal President of the Australian Medical Association, essentially representing the doctors of the country, was also at the panel and also spoke with me after the session. Tony shared his thoughts on what he thinks needs to change in healthcare in light of bushfires and coronavirus and what all parts of the ecosystem should be focusing on to enable better patient care and more sustainable healthcare system. 
clearly from the interaction from the audience, it was very clear that there are the certain key issues around privacy, around funding, around interoperability, about how we get the most and the best out of our health system with the scarce resources in a limited funding budget envelope that is going to be the, obviously the, this year with the crisis of both bushfires and COVID, putting pressure on that uh, surplus and the availability to in, uh, for innovation and new funding that in a health system that's clearly underfunded as we speak, 10% of GDP, we're one of the poorer uh, outcomes there in terms of comparison with our OECD partners. We need to fund health. Health is going to be an increasing demand and increasing need in the face of increasing population, increasing age of population and increasing complexity and chronicity of disease in that population. So we'll be expected to do more. We need to be more efficient and more um, and more outcomes based um, facilitated and so what we do needs to be able to be able to be leveraged across a, a larger group of patients and that's why I talk about the importance of having the drivers that is a multidisciplinary led team under, uh, with uh, GPs coordinating that team and then getting the leveraging across a larger group of patients at the one time so more and more of the community gets the need, gets the health uh, interventions that they need to keep them better, keep them out of hospitals. Hospitals are expensive. Hospitals are inefficient. Hospitals are not a nice place to be, even when you're sick. So anything we can do to transform our health system to one that is clearly and crucially dependent on the efficiency and the effectiveness of a primary healthcare response and using our secondary and tertiary facilities when and where they're needed, not for unnecessary outpatients or duplication of, of prescriptions and, and medications, which ultimately create more confusion and more unintended consequences because of lack of interoperability. There's that word again. Mm. Look, and, and just to close out, was there any um, interesting surprises or anything that came out from the engagement with the, um, with the technology industry from that session at all? They have an, uh, they have a specific dilemma and issue in front of them. They know that they're going to be expected to do more there and they need to innovate. And clearly there isn't that clarity around some of the, the, you know, the, the guide rails that they need to be cognizant of. There's not the funding or the, not the innovation envelope to support and sustain, uh, what is clearly a, a small sector in comparison to international sectors in an Australian, um, primary care system. We need to understand that uh, IT doesn't and and solutions won't just happen because of goodwill. Yes, they they'll occur, but the pace needs to speed up exponentially, and we need to all be working together with you know with that goal of interoperability and better patient outcomes as they are two mantras. Later in the day, attendees heard from Toby Hall, the group CEO of St Vincent's Health Australia. Toby presented to the forum in a session called A Brave New Idea for Health Funding and Opportunities for Industry. Contrary to what you think of a leader of one of Australia's largest providers of hospitals would say, Toby talks about how the future is not delivered in acute hospital and how we should stop investing in hospital beds. Listen to more of his debrief I had with him to learn more about what he meant. I think the key message was to say to people that 
health in the future is not predominantly going to be delivered in acute hospital environments. In fact, I think we've got to stop investing huge amounts of money in hospital beds and actually look at how do we deliver hospital more effectively in the hospitals we have, but more importantly, help people go through a process of recovery at home. Also, we talked about the concept of needing to manage chronic disease far more effectively in Australia and particularly look at the integration between the primary healthcare system and the secondary acute healthcare system. Both systems need to work together and focus on health outcomes for people suffering from chronic disease. At the moment, that's not happening very well and I think we really need to start to incentivise people around delivering health outcomes, particularly for those with chronic disease, because we can give people a much better lifestyle, we can reduce health costs and get a win-win for everyone if we're prepared to change some of the funding models which have been put in place in Australia, which, to be honest, no longer are fit for purpose. Mm. How, do, how do we get traction on that kind of thing around the funding models? Because I, I feel like there's, there's probably... a maybe a general consensus amongst not kind of certain groups, but then obviously we're still in this position today. Do, do you see from your side any kind of movement in this space or is it still kind of wishful thinking? No, I think the encouraging thing is I think uh, Greg Hunt, the health minister, now gets this and certainly I've talked to him about the need to look at investing around outcomes for groups of people with chronic disease. Mm. The health funds absolutely understand this. They have a number of people in all the health funds who've got chronic diseases and, and they know that people with chronic diseases need lifestyle interventions to look at how they live their general life. They need health interventions at an early phase to stop them having more serious interventions in the acute healthcare system. So the awareness is very strong. I think Greg Hunt is prepared to change some of the rules, particularly in private health insurance, to allow private health insurers to deliver integrated packages of care for people with chronic disease, which I think is a really good thing. I think one of the things that the states and the federal government need to work on, though, is how do we do that? In, in an environment where we've separated our primary and secondary care systems. Mm. And unless we address the, the kind of artificial funding model we have in place, I think it's going to be difficult to challenge that paradigm. The reality is what's going to happen is costs are going to force us to do that. But the wise thing is to actually confront that now. I think we need to challenge the vested interests in the health industry which are stopping this happen, mm. who are really focused on the income for their particular vested interests rather than the patient outcomes and turn around and say, let's focus on patient outcomes and let's put our vested interests aside, get the right model in place. And people can still make a very good living and earn a great amount of money and be very successful and get good health outcomes in a different model. Mm. And we're starting to see this play out really well in America and Canada where a number of organisations are really being birthed delivering integrated care to people with chronic diseases. And there's some very specialist organisations that just say, I'm focusing on one disease, that's it. But they're delivering incredible responses because all they focus on is treatment of one area of disease and they're funded for that. They're delivering brilliant outcomes. We should be focusing on that in Australia too. Now that means that there may be some change in who's successful in the health world, but we shouldn't be worried about that. It's okay for new businesses to come in. We expect that in technology all the time. Mm. No one's complaining about Facebook and Amazon doing brilliantly because they, they've they added value to our society. Mm. In the same way, we should be doing the same thing in the health system, letting disruptors come in and disrupt how we care for people with chronic health diseases and give them better outcomes at a lower cost, which is going to be a win-win for the patient, win-win for the government, and win-win for society. Totally on board with all of that. Just lastly to close out, so in terms of St Vincent's and, and the, the hospital network and, and whatnot, any kind of interesting or inspiring modern technology that uh, has been or will be rolled out across the, the group? I think the, uh, the, 
the technology that I'm most excited about recently is uh, MRI-guided ultrasound. Cool. Uh, th- this is working with people with tremors and basically taking away the tremors. Now, that, that it has a phenomenal impact on people who are otherwise very healthy. Mm. And so if you can imagine you're a 65-year-old who's got a tremor, it, it literally is disabling in terms of a number of parts of your life. Mm. A 20-minute procedure can stop that. You can lose the tremors and you can be back living a normal life for the next 20 years. That Those are phenomenal interventions. I think the excitement that's coming around precision medicine in terms of uh, being able to identify and particularly treat specific illnesses with specific drugs, great opportunities happening there. Uh, and I think also the movement to lower length of stay and starting to move towards in-home care is what St Vincent's is focusing on. That's really where we want to go. And for us, it's quite a paradigm change. We've been an organisation where everyone comes to us historically and we're turning around and saying we have to develop an organisation where actually we go to everyone. Uh, so it's going to be quite a fun transformation for us. Next up, Trish Williams is Cisco Chair and Professor of Digital Health Systems at Flinders University. Trish knows health technology. She essentially launched the first ever practice management system in Australia for general practitioners. Trish spoke at the forum about user experience design and the important aspects of designing good software, especially when it comes to the healthcare arena. Trish gave some insights for software developers on how to create solutions with a greater chance of adoption by clinicians, and also some useful tips on how to work in some of those user-centric approaches to the otherwise super rigorous tender submission process that you would encounter when applying for a government tender. Here's the debrief with Trish for more details. Trish, thanks so much for joining. Um, I've, I've pulled you away from lunch and talk about gin and cats, so um, I'll try and keep this quick. Hey, you've just finished your talk. How was it? Um, it was good. I really enjoyed it, which is obviously the main thing. And I and I and I listened as well, Great. which is good. So um, <laughs> that's definitely a good point. <laughs> look, what are some of those key kind of takeaways that you, you'd take from that session? I think it's that user design and user experience design are becoming more and more important in all of the aspects of developing software. Mm -hmm. And we need to start thinking more about it, not just from who it is that's going to be using the software, but also how do we make sure that that experience is both functional, is usable, but is also helping them do what they do rather Mm. than hindering their workflow. Yeah, I do wonder sometimes like why some medical software is like it looks awful to use and it's really hard to use. And it's not like you're coming in. And what I like, though, is it's not like you're coming in as some UX designer from another industry saying, why isn't your software more pretty? It's like, you know this from the start. Like, can you just give a background about like how you've kind of like, not the 30 something years of your life, but it's just at a high level. How do you know this? Okay, so... um I was originally a programmer analyst for um, a company that brought me over to Australia mm-hmm. and wrote the first clinical record system that Australia had. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, having had 15 years experience in the medical software industry, uh, both developing systems, installing them, supporting them, then that background has given me a lot of insight into what I currently do now, which is not only security and safety, mm-hmm. but also looking at how do you improve user design. Mm. Um, and through user experience as well as other sorts of techniques 
And that's really where that, that backbone comes from. Yeah, yeah. And so where to from here? Where can, like, so software uh, developers, com- companies, MSIA members that saw your, your session today, what would you hope that they kind of take away from that and start, uh, I guess, implementing in some of their solutions? I hope that they take away that there are other ways of looking at what they do mm-hmm. and perhaps being able to include some of those things into their development processes. It's very hard for small businesses particularly to have the resources and funding to include, yeah. uh, you know, user design workshops into their processes. Yeah. But they can start on a really small scale and on almost no budget to be able to do that. Um, and as one of the people who have asked a question today about how do you get that in included in things like tenders, mm. then it's really up to the manufacturer or the software developer to actually put some of those processes in place themselves yeah. um, and, you know, rise above whatever other tenders there are through using those sorts of processes for themselves. The main event at the MSIAA Forum was Professor Michael Kidd, the Chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine in Canada. Michael's presentation to the group was titled taking stock of digital health, Australia, Canada, and Utopia. Michael brought home the forum by talking about developments seen outside of Australia, like in Canada and Asia, and how patients are using technology to interact with providers. Michael also shared how Australia stacks up compared to other countries in the use of technology in primary care. He also gave us a look into some of the cool big data initiatives that are underway as well. To delve a bit more into this, here is some of the debrief I had with Michael following his session. Michael, thanks so much for joining and it's the last session of the day and I'm, I'm holding us up from the uh, networking and drinks. So I uh, appreciate you coming over. But look, um, how was the session? What were some of the key takeaways do you think that the, the guys got? Uh, look, this has been an amazing day and been amazing to hear about so many uh, digital health innovations taking place uh, in Australia. There's so much talent uh, in this country. It's really exciting. Um, I talked really about some of the uh, developments which I've been seeing happening uh, outside of Australia. So in Canada, where I've been working for the last uh, three years, uh, very exciting uh, developments being funded in China uh, and in other parts of Asia, um, looking at some of the comparisons in particularly how uh, individual patients are using uh, digital technology to interact with their chosen healthcare providers and looking at how um, Canada's been performing compared to Australia, the USA, UK, Sweden, uh, and a number of uh, other countries as well. Uh, and, uh, and also talking about some of the areas that that I'm really excited about that are underway in Australia, the the ongoing development of the My Health Record initiative, some of the big data initiatives taking uh, place, the work of the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare to create a national primary care data asset, uh, the Generation Victoria project, uh, the uh, the birth cohort, which is about to start um, mm. uh, enrolling every baby born in Victoria uh, through the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital uh, here in Melbourne, and uh, and the potential to use that big data to then inform uh, artificial in- intelligence and machine learning being built into the tools that uh, that doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers are using. Uh, 
as part of their uh, their care provision for their patients. Yeah, it was, it was a fascinating session that covered a lot of ground. Um, and back to that point in relation to you know Australia compared to other countries globally, and and the you know you've got some amazing insights on on how I, I guess us uh, as particularly in the in the primary care space acceptance of technologies and being able to perform different things, different tasks, and and um, perform different things within general practice compared to say the US and New Zealand and Canada and you know Sweden different parts of the world it's always kind of a topic that's talked about on the podcast of as Australia should we be looking to other parts of the world in terms of healthcare should they be looking more to our, like to us like vice versa um you know are we doing well or not from your perspective how do you kind of package that all up and what mm. do we do with that well, i think the first thing to remember is that every country has a unique healthcare system. And it's developed over many, many years. It's been developed in relation to the cultural um, beliefs and acceptances of the community uh, and society of that country. Uh, It's been influenced by different uh, political decisions which have been made uh, over time. It's been influenced by the amount of um, investment which is available uh, in in the country. So, uh, Countries with um, uh, large uh, potential for investment may, may, be, may or may not be more advanced than smaller countries. Often we see lots of innovation occurring in small uh, countries. Mm-hmm. And the uh, study which I was looking at from Health Affairs comparing what was the, the uptake of uh, the use of digital technology in primary care in 11 high-income countries, the top country was Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Zealand was was doing incredibly well. Um, Australia was not at the bottom of the the Pack. Uh, Canada was at the bottom of the yeah, the right. pack, but you know we, the 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 study was looking at uh, whether patients are able to do tele-consults uh, with their chosen primary care provider, mm-hmm. whether people were able to book appointments online to go to the clinic, whether patients were able to request uh, repeat prescriptions or referrals to other providers, whether patients were able to um, get access to the details of the consultation after the uh, the fact to review uh, what had happened and if they were able to pro- uh, ask uh, follow-up questions mm-hmm. uh, of their provider. I uh, was also looking at uh, the uptake of um, home monitoring uh, and other um other technology to particularly support the uh, care at home of uh, frail elderly people or people with uh, chronic conditions, growing population uh, in all high-income uh, countries. So, you know, I think it's useful looking at studies like that and to look and say, well, where do we uh, sit in in our own countries? Um, so, from my perspective, I was looking at where Canada sits, where I'm I'm working at the moment, mm. and um, and then say, well, why is it that we're behind and what is it that our population would actually want and work with consumers in the country because to see if these are developments which would actually be useful. And some of the research we've been doing uh, in the uh, Institute of Virtual Healthcare, which I'm involved in uh, at the University of Toronto, has been about the implementation of teleconsults. And, you know, what we found through uh, a trial involving over 14,000 patients is that there's no increase in costs and no increase in the burden, uh, workload burden on the primary care providers when we add in uh, teleconsults as part of the work that people are 
are doing. And in fact, um, you know, the, the ongoing research we're doing is actually looking at the outcomes uh, for the patients and to see whether uh, we end up seeing better outcomes because people are able to get um, better access to their chosen healthcare provider rather than having to make appointments, queue up, yeah. wait, uh, come to appointments, or if you're homebound, not being seen at all. So there you have it. Some of the heavy hitters of healthcare delivery, influence and innovation, all in the same room, all providing insights and opportunities in front of the health tech industry of Australia. In light of challenges just past, like the bushfires and floods at the start of the year, now leading into one of probably the biggest challenges that we'll ever face in the healthcare community globally, being COVID-19. For all the digital health providers in Australia who are interested in learning more about MSIA and joining the community, I highly recommend it. They act as the voice for every technology vendor in the healthcare space and have incredible influence right up to the ADHA and the health minister himself. Quite simply, if you're a health tech vendor and you're not a member of the MSIA, you aren't part of the industry yet. Check out www.msia.com.au for more information. And I'll see you at the next event, whenever and wherever that might be. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Go check out the website, contribute to the forum, listen to other episodes and get in touch with feedback about the show because collaboration starts with a conversation. Speak to you next time.